Reader's Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. You heard that, everyone listening out there. It's Halloween time. It's my season. And I'm so excited because this year, kicking off our Halloween shows for the month of October, we have New York Times bestselling author Christopher Rice. And he is so much fun, you guys. I can't wait for you to meet him. And if you haven't read his books yet, you are in for a treat because he has written books that just cover the gamut um, of genres. And I will read his bio right Right now so that you can get to know him better. Christopher Rice is an Amazon charts best-selling author whose work whose works include Bone Music, Blood Echo, and the Burning Girl series, the New York Times bestseller, A Destiny of Souls, and the Bram Stoker Award finalist, The Heavens Rise and the Vines. He is an executive producer of The Vampire Chronicles, a television show based on the best-selling novels by his mother, Anne Rice, and together they penned Ramsey the Damned, The Passion of Cleopatra. With his best friend and producing partner, New York Times bestselling novelist Aaron Shaw Quinn, he also runs a podcast that we're going to talk about later uh, um, called The Dinner Party Show. And I put a link to his website where you can find all of those things. So be sure to click on that anytime and check that out. And without any further delay, Chris, you there? I'm here. I'm here. Yay! Well, happy Halloween <laughs> a little early. <laughs> a happy Halloween season. Happy autumn. Uh, yeah, we're not really right. having much of an autumn here in California right now. It feels more like summer, but yes, right. it is the season. <laughs> but the fires are out, right? So you're all good there. The fires in Southern California are mostly under control. I think the one that really choked us here in Los Angeles is still technically burning, but it is, it is, they got the upper hand on it a few days ago. But I have never, I've been here almost 20 years, and I have never experienced something like that. I, I've never experienced smoke sitting over the city that heavy and that long. It was quite a difficult experience for a lot of us, especially those of us with breathing problems. So. Right, right. Yeah, the air quality was really scary. I was seeing my, because I've been in San Diego my whole life, and then we just moved to Florida, and my friends are posting pictures on Facebook of the red sky and the sun. I'm like, this is like a sci-fi movie. Wild. Yeah, it was really, I, it, the the most interesting thing to my eye was the sunrise. I, I, I'm kind of an early riser, and that was really the only time of day when you could see the sun, and it would be blood red. Uh, even when the sky around it seemed a more sort of hazy, muted color, the the sunlight would literally make the wildfire smoke evident by itself. It was it was unbelievable. It was like something out of a science fiction movie, like you said. Um, but yeah. Northern California has been consistently way worse, I think, than than we've had it down here. Yeah, scary times. Well, while we're speaking of scary times, you had a new book mm-hmm. come out, and it's the third book in your Burning Girl series, Blood Victory. Do you want to tell everybody why they should go get it today? Well, yeah, they should go get it because it's good and it's scary. Um, it's also, I would say, <laughs> it's the third in a series, and most people like to start with the first one, which is Bone Music. So I would, if someone's mm-hmm. curious, I recommend starting there. That's sort of the origin story for the heroine of the piece, which is Charlotte Rowe. Who is Charlotte Rowe, I should say? Um I really wrote this series because I was traumatized by horror movies as a little boy, 
uh, particularly the ones in which some crazy mask killer got away with murder again and again and again, literally. And I wanted to invent a heroine who was strong enough and super powered enough to go after those types of sadistic killers and just throttle their butts, if you'll excuse the expression. So I invented um, a young woman named Charlotte Rowe who is administered an experimental pharmaceutical, we should say, uh, that gives her a, a burst of super strength that lasts for about um, three hours. And the circumstances under which she slipped this drug in the first book are sort of nefarious and deceptive, and that's the sort of foundation of that story. But she comes to embrace it and to develop a relationship with the drug makers, and she uh, forms a partnership with them that allows her to pursue and go after these really diabolical serial killers and essentially pose as a possible victim so that they will abduct her take her back to um, their lair or their, their kill site. And then once she's got them in the presence of the evidence of who they are, she overpowers them and turns the tables on them. And I, I think that's really, that moment of turning the tables is really why I wrote the series. And you had to wait three books to get there. Kind of. I mean, there was, there's this, in the second book, is is about her her sort of settling into her hometown life and discovering that there's a plot close to home that she needs to use her powers against. And you get a glimpse of her in operation. But it, by the time we got to the third book, I was like, okay, I really, all of the characters are in the places they need to be for her to really uh, make a mission of this. And so that's what she does. And it's, it's kind of a road trip from hell that she goes on. She identifies <laughs> and working with the intelligence officers that she identifies, um, the, the serial killing truck driver who is functioning in an analog world. So he's not texting anyone. He's not on the internet doing searches relevant to his crimes. And so they have to put him under physical surveillance and she has to get abducted and she has to be willing to sort of stave off the drug's effect. The drug is triggered when she's terrified. So if she can control her fear long enough, she can act like a normal victim for as long as she needs to, to take this road trip from hell to its final destination. So that's, that's basically the long and short of it, but she's got no real sense of what's waiting for them at the end of the road, but they do have kind of a sense that this guy is not working alone. And uh, so that all, once she gets abducted. So the, the point was it, 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 it's supposed to sort of take off like a rocket from the moment of her abduction on. And I wanted to write a book that literally never stopped moving, you know, like it just kept going like those road trip movies that we all love. Right, right. Yeah. So you were exhausted by the time you finished writing it, right? I have to tell you, it was an interesting experience because the mo you never had to, as a writer, I'd never had to dial the pace down too far or dial it up again. Staying in that zone of just like, you know, tires going over pavement actually made it <laughs> kind of a more exhilarating experience. And I was sort of amped up by the time I finished it. You know, like I wanted to send her back out on the road again immediately, but, but it was, um, it was a fascinating experience. It was really fun to have built this world over the course of two books and to be confident enough in these characters that they could all begin to work together because in the previous books, they're all at each other's throats. Nobody's getting along. And, and it was a process to sort of get them into alliances with each other. Right. And is this the final book in the series or are there going to be more adventures for Charlotte? 
I think there will be more adventures for Charlotte. I do. I think that um, this definitely answers some questions about her journey that I think readers might have wanted answers to over the course of two books. And I think this is, but there are still questions yet to be answered. And I think she is not done. She does not feel as if she has satisfied her mission. Charlie's journey is really defined by the fact that when she was a little girl, her, when she was a baby, I should say, her mother was abducted with her in the car and by two serial killers who murdered her mother and then attempted to raise uh, Charlie as their own child. And she was discovered and rescued by law enforcement at age seven. And her father then exploited her experience for every dollar he could, just marching her out in front of the cameras and putting her on book tours when she was a little girl and really kind of not a great dad. So um, she's always had this dark legacy hanging over her head and this dark suspicion by some people that maybe she was more affected by an early life by these serial killer parents than she's let on. And so her need to, to, to bring justice and to hunt these killers is really driven by that. And that's not something that can be uh, expunged from a character in just a few books. Right, right. And I, I had told you before the show, but the, when I was listening, I listened to the audio book of that first one of Bone Music, and it was so unsettling, her flashback to being a little kid of where they were teaching her about the incinerator and, and all this kind mm-hmm. of thing. It made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> We were reading mm-hmm. because, you know, because the idea that you, you know, are serial killers born or are they, you know, made. And so anyway, it was it was really um, unsettling and amazing in a cool way, you know, just that you dug into that. Did you do a bunch of research? How did you come up with all those ideas? I've been darkly obsessed with true crime my entire life, really, I would say adulthood, but I think I became fixated with it. And, and, you know, I feel like it's a generational thing for a lot of us. I I have friends who um, are around my age, and we grew up in the age of child abductions and murders being splashed all over the news. The murder of Adam Walsh was a a sort of Mm -hmm. searing cultural event and a terrible loss. And John Walsh, of course, went on to become this crusader for for the rights of those who had lost um, loved ones to homicide and uh, living in Northern California in the eighties, it was a story that was there a lot. I remember other boys going missing and, and, and children being the sense of, of, of li- not living in a world that was entirely safe. And, and I think we're, it's an interesting, I don't know if you've seen, there's a documentary on HBO max now called class action park, which is about this amusement park. It's actually, it's an odd thing to bring up because it's a hilarious documentary but it's about this amusement park in New Jersey during the late seventies or like eighties where there were no rules. Like it was the most dangerous amusement park oh, in like America. <laughs> yeah. People, people got injured, all this sort of stuff. So, um, but what they talk about is this sense that like the people who grew up during that period felt very unsupervised and they felt like they learned and experienced so much uh, difficulty and danger about the world that it resulted in the kind of helicopter parenting generation we have now. Anyway, that's a really long and, and fancy pants <laughs> way of saying I was really obsessed with um, trying to, the thing about a true crime obsession is that it's different from a horror obsession because true crime offers some potential for resolution. A lot of true crime right. stories are written about the people who were caught, who went to trial, who were convicted. I mean, there are a lot of stories out there about miscarriages of justice as well. 
but but it's really about cat it's about the resolution you know that's what the expectation right. is about for me so that was always there but serial killers always captivated me and i think i was always captivated in part by the fact that we have a strange cultural relationship to them we have people who sort of glamorize them in ways that make me uncomfortable and I think we have some theories about what makes a serial killer that aren't necessarily supported by science and they evolve over time. So all of that was swimming around in my head. But I, I also just fundamentally love stories about strong women kicking butt. Like it's my it's my favorite genre. <laughs> I I appreciate that as well. Um, <laughs> I also wanted to mention, have you ever watched the following that Kevin Bacon show with the serial killer who was fashioning himself after Edgar Allan Poe. Anyway, they I, had I did. scenes yeah, with the child. Yeah, I watched the first and, season. Yeah. Yeah, man, that was a that was a scary, unsettling show too. But, <laughs> but I thought if yeah, you're into that, it's it, really good. I, I think it's an interesting question because I, I think with those Charlie scenes you're talking about, it is it what we see is two people trying to raise someone as if killing people you hate is normal. And that's what's so right. terrifying, you know, because what what's terrifying to me is the villain. The villain never knows they're the villain. That's kind of the secret to life. Like the villain, mm-hmm. the villains I like at least, or who I think read the best on the page, don't believe that they are fundamentally evil. And I think the serial right. killers um, often delude themselves into believing they are punishing someone for a transgression or a crime that deep down their victims deserve it, that they incited it, all that sort of crazy, terrifying stuff. And so really getting into that twisted logic with a character like Charlie who can blow it apart, you know, and, and, and killers to their needs, that's really satisfying to me as a reader at least. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's cool that you can pull in, um, you know, things that fascinate you anyway and then twist it around to see it, you know, from all angles. I thought that that was really cool. Thank you. And I have to ask, because we're all living it right now, but I've been asking everyone who comes on the show, what what are you doing to keep writing during a pandemic? <laughs> in one way, it's like we've trained for this because we are in our writing cave writing. Yes. But in another, I mean, a lot of people like to go out to write, and that's not happening now. And it's hard to, you know, write scary things when the world is scary. So how are you doing it? What's writing during a pandemic look like for you? Well, you know, for me, it's been interesting. The thing that I miss the most was that there was usually one day out of, out of the week where I would go to my favorite restaurant that had kind of a lunch counter and I would sit there and write for hours. And I would, I had my favorite servers and they would bring me my favorite pot of tea and all that sort of stuff. I miss that. I do. Me too. But I do agree with you mostly that we were prepared for this as writers. And I think mm-hmm. that for me, it turned into, I, I had started doing this before the pandemic and, it, and it, it kind of kept working, which is I was actually working on two different um, projects a day. I would write something that was heavier and dark first thing. And then in the afternoon, I began working on something that was really probably the most romantic thing I've ever written. And it's, I, I'm still tinkering with it and figuring out what I'm going to do. Oh. It was a much lighter gay romance um set in a luxury <gasps> hotel <laughs> so, oh yeah, my god it was oh my gosh <laughs> and it when was is that saving, coming out 
it might say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still working on it. I envision it as part of a trilogy. So I, I, I'm kind of thinking maybe I'll try to write all three before I even make all a three. plan for it. Yeah. But the world but, needs um, it now. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> well, right. And it's set in a hotel. And I was writing it as hotels were closing and having these horrible. I, I, so, I kind of feel like hotels are coming back faster than restaurants are now. But so that was that was my sanity giver is that I would lighten things up later in the day. And but uh, the other aspect of this for me is that I'm single and I live alone. And I, I think there was an there was an arc to that. Like in the beginning of the pandemic, all of my family and friends, if you will, were saying, oh, that must be so hard for you. You're all by yourself. I would go crazy if I were completely alone. And then three months later, they were like, I want to put my children in a closet and lock it <laughs> and slide food <laughs> under the door. They're driving me crazy. I want these. And I'm sitting here like, I get to decide what I watch on TV tonight, and there will be no disagreements or arguments. So, so that's been part of it. But anyone who lives a life of the mind – I think is is maybe doing a little bit better than this. I was I'm not a huge social person. Like I like to go out and do social things because they make feeling uh, being at home feel better again once I get home again. Like it's the contrast sharpens then the pleasure of what I enjoy doing. Yes, exactly. Right. So so that's yeah. And if you never get it. to go out, then it becomes you know normal. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. I also have space, which I'm very grateful for. I'm blessed to have a, a, a home where I can, I've got some different rooms and I can move around a bit. I think my friends in New York who were in tiny apartments at, when, when they were just going through the worst of it, they were really, I think their mental health was really under strain and I felt very bad for a lot of them. So I, I was glad to see them start to trickle out into the world again and be able to get out and in a safe way. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So for people who haven't, you know, really interacted with you much online, you're very, you're very active on Twitter. And, but tell people about the dinner party show. That's your podcast. And now you guys are doing true crime. Like it's amazing. Want to tell everybody about it? Yeah, of course. I, I, so it's a partnership with my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, who is also a a writer. And I think he's hilarious and very talented and everyone should check out his right murder mystery series. The first one is out. It's called right murder. Uh, It's about a ghost writer and a celebrity he works for who get entangled in a big Hollywood murder mystery. And it's very, very comic and very sharp and very witty. And I thought forever, we had been friends forever. And I thought um, we should, he has such a great radio voice and such a great voice in general. I had always wanted to do something with him where we had microphones in front of us. So a couple of years ago, we started a, what was really more of a live internet radio show called the dinner party show, which involves sketch comedy and celebrity interviews. And we did it. We would stream it live through our website every night, uh, every Sunday, I should say. And we did it for about three years. And then um, we were both working on development of the Vampire Chronicles series, or we sort of got deeply involved in that, and it took away our time for it. So we put it on hiatus. We did some work on YouTube, filmed some videos on YouTube, and then, the, again, the Vampire Chronicles sort of took us away from that. So a little while ago, I, you know, podcasting became more of a thing after we started the Dinner Party Show. It was really not what it was now. Everyone thought mm-hmm. this Internet radio thing was going to be a big deal. So when I, I, I went with some friends to a podcast recording of My Favorite Murder in San Diego, actually, your former hometown, 
And yeah. I was so taken with the way the hosts just were sort of them. Like they just got on stage and they were funny and it's a hugely popular podcast. The audience was like 2000 people. And I, um, I thought, well, Eric and I should really try something where we just, we don't have to produce all the sketches. We're not dealing with in-studio celebrity interviews, all of which logistically require some, some work. We're just going to do, we're going to sort of express ourselves in front of the microphones and have a conversation like we have every evening on the phone. And after we started it, after a few episodes, Eric was the one who brought up the idea of Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Because we wanted to think of something, we were trying to do something that we could integrate into the other work that we were doing that wasn't going to take over our lives as much as the previous show had. And so we thought, well, what are we already doing? And Eric said, we watch a lot of true crime documentaries. So we can talk about an hour of television that we've both watched and we can sort of serve it up for the people listening where they can watch ahead. We'll let them know what we're going to talk about, but they don't have to. It's not a requirement. And, um, this, this is what we'll do. So that's one thing out of several that we do. We also watch sort of kooky paranormal investigative shows and, and assess whether mm-hmm. or not there was any scientific method used. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we, and it's been fun. And we are so grateful that we have figured out a way to uh, re- record them remotely during the pandemic. I think otherwise that would have really brought us to a halt. But I think a lot right. of podcasters have figured out how to, it's not, it's not necessarily the easiest process, but it, it, the sound quality has stayed strong and good. And um, we're, you know, it's, it's, it's given us something to focus on during those long periods at home that I think has been uh, productive. So I hope people enjoy it. All the podcasts can be downloaded or streamed from the dinnerpartyshow.com, but they should also be on every podcast platform people prefer. Right. And, and it's also cool. I mean, I, I try to find bright spots where I can, but I think the pandemic has been really cool in helping everyone learn how to use zoom, how to use, you know, Mm -hmm. their, their video on their phone to talk to people and that kind of thing, just so we can stay connected during this crazy year. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there is power in Zoom. Like I thought, well, you know, I'm texting people, I'm calling them, what's the big deal? But just looking into somebody else's eyes is so, (laughs) if you're at home as much as we are, yeah, it's comforting. It is. And to see see that they too look tired. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I'm all right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) So I wanted to also touch on like the dinner party show, um, I think taps into that part of you when, when we've talked before, we've talked about your writing journey and how you didn't think you were going to be a writer, right? Didn't you think you were going to be an actor? I did. I did. I thought I was going to be an actor and I, I had dreams when I went to college of, you know, Goodwill Hunting was a big success and Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had written that screenplay and acted it. And I really thought that was going to be my path. I look back on it now and I'm not sure if I was a little like, too self-conscious I think to be an actor like I had there was more going on in my head than outside my head and (laughs) so I I may have ended up on the right path you know through but but I auditioned for a lot of plays my freshman year of college and just didn't get called back for anything and it was really crushing I I just because I had been such a theater kid in high school that I I I just thought oh they're waiting for me and right. um, I uh, went back to my dorm room and nobody could stop me from writing. Nobody could take that outlet away from me. So I started writing some, you know, not great plays, 
You know, my mother always cringes when I criticize my early work, but it's like, man, they, 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 they weren't great, but they were a beginning. And, um, yeah, you know, I think it, it was a natural extension of the fact that I was always a voracious reader. And I think that mm-hmm. most writers are writing what they want to read. If they're writing stuff they're excited about, they're writing what they want to read. And that's what I started doing. Yeah, and and I love, too, that um, didn't you tell me before that your mom didn't know you were writing a book and then you presented it and she was like, what? Is that how it no, happened? Yeah, she had no idea. I had moved out to L.A. With, young with some friends of mine and we were developing, I put in air quotes, screenplays. And <laughs> she got very sick. She went into a diabetic coma. She didn't know she had diabetes. And I... Uh, flew home to be with her and decided Mardi Gras was coming up. So as she began to recover, I decided to just stay. But I had none of my screenplay files with me. This was in the it, long before the cloud was a thing. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I uh, I just started working on this short story that I had in my hard drive and became my first novel, A Density of Souls. Like it just it was it just grew and grew and grew. And I think the way I was able to do it was by keeping the stakes really low in my head. Like I was, you know, by not, if I had said, I'm, I am writing a novel that will be well suited to publication in a year's time, I would have freaked out. Like I just, I would have had a, you know, I could, no, 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 no. But it's just one day at a time. I just kept pecking away at it. And then at the end of three months, it was manuscript length. It wasn't ready for publication. It needed major editing, but it was. And so, yeah, I shocked her. And I said, I wrote a book and she was completely stunned. Nobody thought I would. I never thought I would either. The thing about screenwriting was that it seems like all the hard work would be done by somebody else, you know. Right. <laughs> that was really appealing when I was in to my stand. early 20s. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, and that that's so funny because um, when you were writing Ramsey's, uh, the Cleopatra book with your mom, you were telling me that you were sending it to her for edits, and she kept telling you about hats, right? You had more to write hats. in more hats. More hats, more hats, yes, because it was the Edwardian era, and, you know, Anne Rice is all about those sensual details, and I was, there were not enough hats, there were not enough hats. Yeah, so you needed to get all those tiny details working with your mom. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. So... Uh, you've already talked about your your secret day romance in the big hotel that we all need right now. But what else are you working on? <laughs> Assuming the vampires are still on hold because of the plague, right? Uh, yeah, that's it. The vampires were in a good place before the plague, and they've been put on pause. But they're 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 healthy and alive, and you know it's just it pause they're is immortal. good. You know. They're immortal. They'll live forever. Yeah, AMC really is invested in this universe, and. Um, they have the rights to the vampires and the witches. And so that, that those, oh. which are connected universes in the books. So right. they will possibly be connected in the, in the shows as well. So that's very exciting, but yeah, cool. there's not much to report on that. And I know people are getting frustrated with the lack of updates, but it's really, it's a COVID thing. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. The so plague I, shut everything down. Yeah. I think there are, there's another uh, collaboration book length collaboration with my mother. That's currently a secret. So I can't go into too much detail about it. Yes. What? I will just dangle that oh, out there. I can't wait. And, um, 
I'll be doing another uh, thriller. I'll be doing a standalone thriller with uh, Amazon Publishing, the same people I've worked with on the Burning Girl series. And so that's exciting, too. And I just started work on that. So, yeah, it's a lot of – I stayed busy. That's how I've stayed sane. I've stayed busy. Yeah, well, that's good. And um, before we run out of time, I always ask during Halloween season, what was your best Halloween costume ever? Well, you know, there were two – there's a division in my Halloweening life. There's my Halloween experiences as a child, and then there are my Halloween experiences (laughs) as a gay man living in West Hollywood. And let's just say the orientations (laughs) of the costumes were very different. As as a child, it was more sort of pumpkins (laughs) and whatever. And as a grown-up gay man, I decided for a couple years in a row to go as the athletes I had never been in high school. Uh, so I, I think my baseball player costume was the biggest, uh, success and I'll just leave it baseball at that. Crew. Yeah. Baseball. I was, okay. I was a convincing baseball player, probably a less convincing football player, more of a, con- <laughs> a more convincing baseball player. So, yeah. Okay. And then what's your favorite Halloween movie that we should all watch this year? I have to say, I have the original Halloween is pretty terrifying, oh, and it's not excessively gory and um, just sort of you know frightening. I think the sequels went into crazy town, but um, the original <laughs> one is terrifying. Um, I think in terms of like less scary, there are some like is Hocus Pocus a Halloween movie? Yes, it happens on Halloween. It's one of my favorites. I love that one. The yeah. Anderson sister. It was, yeah. Yeah, I saw it for the first time actually recently, and I, I thought that's a pretty cute and charming Halloween movie. I, anything it that, is. for me, Halloween is like autumn in New England. Anything that evokes mm-hmm. autumn in New England is great. And I'm particularly hungry for that because we don't have autumn here in uh, California. Right. <laughs> Right. Maybe ever yeah. again. Yeah, you so, gotta live, um, live it through the movies. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's gonna be my jam. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being here. I wish we had more time, but um, everyone, go check out Blood Victory. It is on Amazon in audio, ebook, hardcover, paperback. Go grab your copy. And Chris, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Lisa, yeah. and I uh, hope you yeah. Thanks for joining us on Book Life. Thank you. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.